0: that idea it's kind of like the canary in the mine idea if if you're aware of what's happening with the canary then it can save the miners <laughs> and so people of color especially those who are most marginalized are the canaries in the mine and so in order to even know what is happening with the canary in the mine like we have to have a relationship with
1: him we have to be moving
0: with them, dancing with him
1: hello i'm craig constantine Welcome to the Movers Mindset Podcast, where I interview movement enthusiasts to find out who they are, what they do, and why they do it. This is episode number 81, Andrew Siseno, Ancestors, Parkhan Resilience, and Racism. Andrew Siseno's Parkon goes beyond the physical to create community and fight racism. Andrew discusses his family, ancestors, and their role in his identity. We explore what Parkon is, why he created PARCON Resilience, and his vision for the anti-racist work it does. Andrew unpacks various pieces of racism in modern America, how PARCON Resilience addresses it, and shares why the work he does inspires him. Hello, I'm Craig Constantine. I'm Andrew Saseño. he, him. Andrew Saseño is a physical therapist, dancer, teacher, and the founder of PARCON Resilience, he has studied movement and the body for many years and is a certified orthopedic manual therapist, Laban movement analyst, and Feldenkrais practitioner. Andrew founded Parcon Resilience in 2017 as an anti-racist, relational, and environmental somatic form and teaches classes throughout East Harlem, New York, and abroad. Welcome, Andrew. Hi hey, Craig. Andrew, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down today and talk. I say this a lot, but there are so many people, but you in particular, that I've wanted to talk to for a while. I first encountered you probably at like a Jesse Danger Friendsgiving or something. Mm-hmm. And then I finally had a chance to take a parkon movement session and I totally want to get to unpacking park on and contact awesome. improv and all this stuff. But the first thing I want to start with is all the guests tend to bring things with them. And I'm wondering okay. on the tabletop between us are, I'm going to say three items. I think one of them was one item and it's now broken. So I think it's really two items, no, but no, I could three. be um, three items. Yeah. Can you tell me what the, who is on the, it looks like an ink, like a, it, yeah, it's like a stamp. It's mm-hmm. like an ink stamp. And so there's
0: three items and they come from my altar. So we have a family altar and in the mornings my son and I will, sit in front of the altar and we'll light a candle and we'll say a value that we want to have for the day. You know, it could be like creativity or openness or strength. And then we'll ask a question or share a story in our lives. Mm. Ask a question of the ancestors. Do you have any stories of strength? You know, and I'll I'll share what I have from my mom or some stories that I've heard about my relatives and things, or we just open up a question and trust that the ancestors are going to speak to us in ways that we don't necessarily know. And so, uh, the different objects that we have are ways to connect. So, we usually pick an object when we're opening the door, and we say it in Indonesian, because I'm Indonesian, Chinese, Indonesian, American. So, and we say, puka pintu, which means open the door, and then we count to six in bahasa, which is Indonesian language. And So, for example, I was holding a stamp that has an imprint of my father's picture on it that I think when he was like maybe twenty, twenty or something and 22. I have no idea where it came from, Mm. except for maybe he was a doctor. So, maybe they made these imprints for some reason. I have no idea in Indonesia. And uh, maybe they they use these (laughs) for some reason, but... But whatever it is, there's a lot of questions about my father and random objects and pictures that we don't know the people's names to and pictures too. But they they open up the door for questions and ways to try to connect with a past that's not exactly here and that we don't necessarily have the same kind of ready access to. Ready access to that maybe
1: white Americans would. Well, I meant ready access, like you know, I can go talk to my mom. My like, oh. mom is still living. You don't have ready access to your father anymore. True. <clears throat> yeah, my father passed away.
0: 12 years ago now yeah and and most of my relatives speak bahasa i, I guess mm-hmm. that's the, re- the ready access to and I, d- I don't speak necessarily fluently so it's difficult to even ask the stories of the ones who are mm-hmm. alive yeah the other objects i have it there's a sea coral and uh my father was cremated and so his ashes are in the sea so this is kind of like a way to connect Reminder, with him The mm-hmm. yeah, the one is a uh, dried out lung berry which is like a fruit that you can eat in
1: indonesia that you can get in china down here size so, of a hazelnut right yeah i'm wondering if your i hesitate to say loss of the language but your separation from can you remind me the name of the language bahasa bahasa i'm wondering, it just means speak in <laughs> i love when people unpack yeah it sounds <laughs> neat, but it's just this simple thing i'm wondering if your lack of access to that language does that make you feel more cut off from your family? Or is it just a concept of like, well, okay, it's a piece of where we were from that I'm okay not having access to?
0: No, totally makes me feel more cut off. And I think it's really common with second generation Asian Americans. My family came during the 1965 Immigration Act. That's when the US opened up the immigration quotas to allow other Asians, other, like most Asian culture, Asian people from different other countries to come in. Right. Um, Because before that there was a lot of, uh, there's a Chinese Exclusion Act and there was a lot of laws that prevented Asians from entering the U.S. And so with the 1965 Immigration Act, professionals were allowed in because the U.S. needed more professionals in general. So my father was a doctor and in Indonesia, because we were ethnic Ethnically Chinese, they didn't allow the ethnic Chinese to uh, specialize in anything there. Uh, Chinese were persecuted in Indonesia, mm. so in one effort to t- kind of to try to escape there, Bad, right? Because a lot of, a lot of things were happening to Chinese there. It wasn't just not being able to practice medicine, but like we literally had to change our last name. Our last name used to be Tan, and they changed it to, to Suseno because it was what was acceptable within Indonesia. Mm. You weren't allowed to celebrate Chinese culture, all the Chinese kind of community centers were closed, no Chinese nothing. So in coming here to the States, my parents didn't teach me any Bahasa because they didn't want me to struggle with assimilating. Hmm. Which is something I think a lot of Asian Americans, when they first came to the U.S., worried about their children, about how they assimilated. And they wanted us to excel and kind of basically fit into the model minority Right thing, but at a lot of cost, right? To uh, like a disconnection from culture and disconnection to family. Hmm. So I I didn't even understand the language my parents were speaking with each other in the household. Like hmm. they spoke with each other in Bahasa and I had no idea what they were saying. Except for maybe things like naughty child <laughs> like gotta go no. to the bathroom. Like things that I heard a lot. I'm like, Oh, that that must be me. Um, <laughs> oh. Darn it. Um, but I had no idea. Like, you know, like I think, you know, I'm married now and I have a six-year-old child and he can understand whatever my wife and I are processing or working through. And and it does a lot, you know, if a child is able to, to hear their parents processing through things and expressing their emotions and being people, you know, who are just working through things. But I think my parents, you know, are doing their best and wanted me to, to excel and they had their own experiences of struggling with assimilation in Indonesia. And then coming here, they wanted to make sure that I didn't go through that as that. much. Yeah, so.
1: I know, it's gonna sound like I'm going all over the place here. but I no, don't go for it. So I, when I first heard about contact improv, I was like, that is totally a thing. And I'm gonna guess that contact improv is not the most interesting topic in your university you wanna talk about, but I think it's important that we at least touch on what contact improv is, Just in case people have no idea what contact improvisation is because it's buried in Parcon, which is like important. So can you give me the two minute idiot tour of (laughs) what contact improvisation is? Yeah. So contact improvisation is where usually
0: two, but it could be more, but two or more people are sharing their weight. They're leaning into one another. And through that contact point, which can be any part of the body, you can slide, you could pivot, you can balance. So you could be Mm -hmm. literally balancing on somebody's shoulder, rolling down to their hip and and any body part could be doing that. And so it's kind of like a conversation. It's all improvisation. So you don't know what's going to happen, but you're listening to how you fall towards each other. And it came about from Steve Paxson, who's a white man in the seventies who developed the form uh, with a collective of others both men and women, white men and women mostly. And he believed in the exploration of the body, bodies and uh, through physics, mm. kind of the falling toward each other and seeing what would happen. And blowing up the idea that connected with contact improv was a contact jam mm. uh, idea, which is like a different kind of performance where anybody could come in and out of a jam space and the audience wasn't necessarily just... Uh, sitting watching, but the audience itself could come in and participate. And so, um, what's special that I love about contact improv is that it's specifically part of the ethos is that beginners and experienced people can come together and share an experience, and, mm-hmm. and it doesn't matter what your experience level is because we all are in bodies that fall and deal with gravity. And it's about the the connection that happens with that you don't you don't know where you know how somebody's going to catch themselves or rebalance or fall. Um, but it's all about that that
1: um, listening that happens between yeah. the two people. And I'm going to guess that you were interested in that or had been exposed to that before you discovered parkour, and having seen a little bit of that of some of the sessions and and like done a little teeny tiny bit of it, I can totally see how if you were into parkour, you'd be like, "Hey, guys, I got this other bag of tricks, and I got this <laughs> uh-huh. thing in here called contact improv. What happens if we try and put the two together?" And I'm wondering, how did your perception of your own body change as you went from, I'm going to say, having an understanding of contact improv, and then suddenly you begin trying to move over obstacles. Did did your sense of self like really, like how, how did the contact improv play into your parkour experience. Like most people know about parkour and they have a certain idea. I do this jump, I feel this way, I, I shin myself. Like there's an, a commonality to the embodied experience of doing and learning parkour. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering how your experience may have been different because you had a very deep understanding through of your body through contact improv. Am I mm-hmm. making sense?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I, also, I have some other movement background too in addition to contact improv. I <laughs> but but um, I guess in terms of a contact improv focus, I think I love the idea of starting to, for me, what parkour opened up was, oh, this wall. It doesn't just have to be this thing I walk by anymore. I can jump on it. I can vault on it. I can have a connection to it, a relationship to it. And as I started exploring things, and also especially through the way that the movement creative with Mm -hmm. Jesse Danger, like those are the, he was the person who fell into it. Yeah, that's where I fell into it. And he was very much about teaching you how to vault, but also f- allowing people to find their way, their own ways to vault. So, it was like, you know, there's this move that we have here, but like, you know, do what you want to do. Like, what's the way that you can discover that? And how, how can you find your way through it? Mm-hmm. And it was, I think, that invitation into parkour, that there wasn't a right way to do it. There maybe is an efficient way to do it that has been tested and yeah, tried. the best way to do it, right. But there was an invitation to explore. And that's what invited me to bring in the rest of myself. Mm. Right. And, and I think for me in learning parkour, I, I loved the use of the hands and the feet and sometimes your bottom face, <laughs> face, <laughs> but, but intentionally using any part of my body, which I had from contact improv and, and leaning into it and falling through there and having it even be a site like my ribs be a site for mm-hmm. a jump, you know, right. or if some, even if it was a small jump, that was a, That was kind of uh, something that I guess that invitation to experiment invited, Mm -hmm. right? So I was like, "Yeah, I want to try improving solutions to this challenge Mm -hmm. that's that's before me to get to do this run from one point to another." And because I'm bringing all myself, sure, I'll roll over my ribs and maybe I'll do a, a turn back or I'll go over this bar in a different, you know, in this way that that feels good in my body or that's like using other parts of my body because right. I'm acquainted with them or I've, right.
1: I've, I've been using them in different ways. Right. So I just wanted to kind of chase those trains of thought yeah. because I, I wanted to sort of bring people into, I always had the problem of like, I often know a lot more than the average random person who would be listening to the material. And I wanted to start there with like, yeah, what is going I want to bring us like all those pieces together. Cause that's a pretty obvious um, succession of things that happened to you like this. Mm-hmm. Oh, I see why that happened. I see why that happened. Because what I really want to ask is, okay, so tell me about Parcon Resilience. And one of the things that I read that really jumped out at me was, and I'm not going to get the quote exactly right. Cause I don't have it in front of me, but you wrote, or somebody wrote <laughs> something that said the park resilience is interested in, and I'm gonna say anti-ambulatory types of movement. And you're looking at me funny, so I'll, I'll unpack further. And the way I interpreted that was the idea that so much of what we do, including in parkour, but so much of what humans do in general is ambulatory on, on like two feet per ambulatory. Yeah. And What I found most interesting about the PARCON stuff that I have seen and that I have experienced is, Mm -hmm. yeah, we use our feet, but it's really not entirely about ambulatory. And then it gets really interesting when you can like take limbs away, or I've seen people who are in wheelchairs participating in movement with people who are using their legs. Um, And I'm just wondering, can you tell me about PARCON resilience? And if I've picked out an interesting piece of like the attempt to make non-ambulatory movement not quite so normal, or like not the thing that is the thing that's only ever seen. Yeah. Well, that, I,
0: I, f- I feel like we haven't really fleshed out what parkon is yet. Still, that's very likely. <laughs> do you want right, to do that? So let's you want let's to do Parkhan? Let's take a step back. Yeah. So <laughs> so Jesse was curious about the way that I was coming up with movement, right? And and after a while, I started sharing with him ways of impro- improvising, both contact as well as just dance improvisation. And then at the art of the first art of retreat, he invited me to teach a contact improv class and I started teaching it outside and was teaching from a place of open questions. Like if I just tell you that contact improv is about two bodies falling towards each other in a, in a way that you can take care of yourself and not hurt yourself. Let's start from that without giving more instruction on that. And just had people starting to explore falling towards each other and how to come to the ground, come out. That led to exploration on different environments and terrain, right? So, first we went on a speed bump, then we went towards a bench, and then eventually it was in a gazebo where there was rafters and you could hang from the rafters and somebody was on your back, but you were also holding yourself part part of your weight up by a rafter and you could spin on a rafter in a different way because somebody was underneath you mm-hmm. supporting your weight, which might have been too heavy if you were by yourself. But then you could almost like swing and jump with your hands because your back was being supported by somebody underneath you and make it all the way to your feet on a, another railing on another side. So, so it was like being able to engage in the environment together, right, in a way that you would never be able to alone. And so, so that for me is part of uh, one of the core aspects of PARCON is discovering one's potential with ability and intention in an environment while you're in a relationship with others and in, in forming a collective, forming some kind of relationship that's empathetic. And so all the things that I was talking about with contact improv, parkon in particular is about using any part of the body on the, in the environment, mm. uh, not just a flat, even floor environment, but like on a tree or on a slant, an incline. And while you're doing that with another person, so it's kind of the combination of those things. So,
1: yeah, I think that makes perfect sense. Okay. So, uh, so now, back to the Park yeah, now resilience. The West Park
0: resilience. So. I thought you were going to say anti racism, but you said anti ambulatory. Well, we're curious. going there yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. so I, let's, do, let's stick with the anti ambulatory. <laughs> Here, first. I'll
1: show you what's going on behind the curtain. <laughs> what's going on behind the curtain is there's all this cool stuff I want to get to, which is like anti racism and, yeah. and like the shifting of the focus from everything being white centric. I want to get there. Okay. But sometimes I'm afraid that if I just go straight there, it's too complicated. So I was trying no, to no, like explain, great. hey, if you want to just jump on stuff, no, I want no. to try and tease you away. But you know what? You can go wherever you want. No, let's go. Let's do the anti
0: ambulatory. <laughs> I like that you started there. I think. So, if you kind of think about the being able to do things that are that are that go beyond how I normally relate to my body and how I normally relate to a place mm-hmm. our built environment is very ableist, yes right, and so there might be no ramp for somebody in a wheelchair to get up to a certain place or and and so in when somebody is park with somebody who might be in a chair, who might have the ability to maybe do a couple steps, if they had uh, somebody who is in kind of a dynamic balance with them or helping take off some of their weight, then all of a sudden it becomes possible, right? And so, so there's this invitation across ability to be able to, to create new possibilities for being in public, for being in the world, and it's it's not just a singular thing, right? It's like, who are we as people in relationship? Because both people are transformed. The person who might be considered or seen as able-bodied is having a different relationship that's not about therapy, that's not about doing anything for the person who's in a chair or who's differently ambulatory. right but we're sharing in an expressive dance experience, right? It's like a mutual dance experience that both people are having a mutual contribution from that they're, that they're feeling a mutuality with. And so in terms of uh, the anti-ambulatory nature of it, I feel like core to it is that the desire for exploring and the desire to connect within the, f- the form is, 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 Equal or open for, for people of all different abilities, mm-hmm. whether you're moving your legs or not, or even if even if you couldn't move your legs and you're in a chair and and you were you only could move your chair with your head, right? And and your tilt of your head and that moved the chair back and forth or to the side, but that choice enables partnership to to navigate a space differently.
1: Right. That neither of them would. Have that been neither able to. of them
0: would be able to by themselves, and that that landscape isn't just the particular place, but it's a landscape that's political and social that that can be internalized as a different, uh, like, purposefully internalized as as a way of being in the world differently. Like, mm-hmm. oh, I can connect with people with disabilities differently. I can I can actually have a relationship
1: with them. I can, right and. Mm-hmm. And then one of the other obvious big things, because I mentioned it in the introduction, was talking about anti-racism and PARCON Resilience as a vehicle for that, for I must, maybe not tearing it down isn't the right word, but highlighting or illuminating the places that aren't racist. Would that be a better way to showing people opportunities for experience that don't involve racism? It's really important to me that
0: parkon Resilience is POC-centered. Then POC, I mean person of color. And a uh, person of color across intersectionality. So intersectionality being that we exist within an intersection of identities. So I can be a person of color and I'm a man or a person of color with disabilities or a person of color with, who's a senior and, or queer person of color or, or whatnot. But that the focus for Park on Resilience as an anti-racist group is that it's an anti-racist group for all people of color across intersections and I think along that idea it's kind of like the canary in the mine idea if if you're aware of what's happening with the canary then it can save the miners and so people of color especially those who are most marginalized are the canaries in the mine and so in order to even know what is happening with the canary in the mine like we have to have a relationship with him we have to be moving with them, dancing with him and so I, I always am making mistakes and putting trying to put myself out there because I am a Southeast Asian man of color but I'm also a cis male heterosexual male married with a kid married with a kid middle class and like I have all these things that are intersecting that I uh, have a lot of blind spots and Maybe I can be pushing th- some things certain ways and advocate in certain, certain ways, but I have to follow the lead of other people and be creating a resources and sharing the platform and and learning all the, the resistance work that's already out there because there's so much good work that's already been put out there and, uh, that in building with others, I should be educating myself in hmm. that work before I engage or as I'm engaging. and So I say all that, because at least locally in New York City, I do my best to try to keep all the events POC majority because it, it, does, it does a lot for a, a, in a POC, in a, in a group of people, if there's a majority POC, then we don't have to think or we don't have to justify why we should be talking about race. We don't have to justify why people of color and their issues are important. Whereas when I've been in white spaces before, or for example contact improv or parkour spaces, which are which have that I've been in that have been more white majority or white focused, bringing up race or talking about race, it seems like I'm bring feel makes it feel to me as a person of color like I'm bringing the baggage that 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 I'm bringing up some shit that shouldn't be brought up and. Mm. When as a person of color, it's like, the, it's the stuff that we're experiencing every single day. You know, it's like, it's, it's the air that we breathe. And arguably, it is that way for white people too. It's just that they happen How's to be the on, the, water, right? on the privileged side of it. So, park on resilience is a way of practicing ways of being, ways of listening, ways of interacting with others that respect and honor people of color, and a race consciousness. And so while Park on Resilience is POC-centered, it, it is a form for all people who want to be race-conscious across intersectionality. And so with that said, uh, one, what I was thinking, one of the ways that I talk about it is by bringing up an article um, by a woman named Adrian Smith. She's a Cherokee activist, writer, um, and she wrote an article called Heteropatriarchy and the Three Pillars of White Supremacy. And, and we, can, we can slowly piece this one apart. Heteropatriarchy, you know, males are on top where the cream of the crop in the world is here for us and we can dominate everything and it's all about domination and, it's, and, it, and it exists on this binary, right? That there's men and there's women and that all the things in between or people who not even in between or that don't identify as men and women aren't worth even being on our radar right. yeah but it's basically about men dominating any anything weaker even weaker men right so it's so that is kind of the basis for racism in the sense that it's white men that were pushing for the three pillars of white supremacy and binary models right of like us and them. And so the three pillars of white supremacy that Adrian Smith talks about is slavery, genocide, and Orientalism. And oftentimes in America, we just talk, uh, the discourse is usually around uh, black and white with slavery and what fails to get seen, but it's getting seen more is genocide, which is racism against indigenous people and the erasure of their existence (laughs) And and their relationship to the land and yeah. And and treating them as if they're in the past, like they're not even here. And then Orientalism, which is something that Asian Americans and immigrants face more, which is always being treated as a foreigner, always being treated as the other. And the you know, common thing as an Asian American that I've been asked throughout my life is where are you from? And I'm from, I was
1: born Illinois, in Illinois, I yeah, I was born in
0: Chicago. No, where are you really from? You know, like that's kind of the, the mom
1: and the dad. But, <laughs> um,
0: but that those three pillars, right? That those three ways of othering people are the are things that white supremacy sits on, and keeps on reperforming itself mm. in in all the time. And so, park on resilience is a is a movement, or I want to say somatic, uh, mindful, mind-body approach to trying to embody a different relationship to those, to those pillars. So, for example, with slavery, um, the body is treated as property. And in that sense, the labor that was done by African-Americans was their worth. Right, it, it didn't matter what their culture was, didn't matter their family connections, didn't matter their intelligence, unless it was being used to produce something like, oh, I don't know, music or poetry or anything at the time um, that was for white people to be entertained. But everything that wasn't for production was waste, in a sense. That said, we can't do... To others what we don't do to ourselves. <laughs> and so that process of dismissing, erasing one's emotional relevance, erasing one's sense of culture, cultural relevance, erasing one's sense of ability to create the world. Hmm. That's something that was traded <laughs> right. in the in the act of doing slavery right and and has been passed down generally generationally through white people been done onto black people and then passed on to everybody else who has come to the u.s and become american and whatnot as as one of the embodiments of of a pillar of white supremacy and so within park on resilience it's super important for us to to orient to our fullness and part of fullness is like what's first what's our felt sense of the world like very, you know, artists will feel into things. Like if you think of a painter, you know, they might paint their feeling of love. And, the you know, you'll see the colors and you'll see right. certain vibrance. And there might be depth to it. And, and the texture of I mean, what yeah. they create.
1: Right?
0: Yeah. And it's, it, it's so important for all of us to be in touch with that. You know, all of us to be in touch with an artful way of connecting with each other. But why are the arts so separate. Why does it have to be over there in the arts? And part of that, I Mm. think, right, is this legacy of body as property. And so so there's this there's this distancing from emotions. And as as men growing up in the society, the one emotion that we feel most connected to is anger. But it is not supported for us to be in touch with our our mourning and our tears and our any kind Joy, of expression, love, <laughs>
1: anything other than anger. Anger is pretty much good. You can have more anger. Uh-huh. And,
0: and what, and, and so, so that's like emotions, just emotions, invoking of ancestors, connection to ancestors. You know, like I speak with my wife, who's a, a white woman and she knows a little bit about her family history, but doesn't know about any f- history going into like, was she connected to, slave masters of any kind, like, and, you know, and like, mm-hmm. how does that history all of a sudden get forgotten? You know, like where, where, where is that? And then the lack of accountability for that relationship. right. And, mm-hmm. and uh, so part of park on resilience is like, well, how can we connect with our ancestors and feel that if I'm, if I'm drawing on a sense of uh, strength for myself in my life, I can call upon strength from stories that I might have heard about my ancestors hmm. because that was passed down to through the generations to me in the ways that my, those relatives acted, in the ways that it was passed down to my mother. Like there is some form of resistance or strength, something that I can draw on, and I might not know directly how it manifests, but I make the space for it to happen. I make the space for it to express through me. Right, so so, making the space for the unknown to happen, for the illogical to happen, for for channeling mm-hmm. almost to happen, I think just orienting to how we are situated in the world beyond our individual self, because in you know like if we think about uh, somebody going to the market to to buy things, which is at the root of slavery and capitalism, then we have the individual who can go and buy products, right? And, and, and a person as a product, but any, anything is a product. And we've all learned to, number one, see our own skills and our own experiences almost as products. And we turn everything into this thing that can be commodifiable and sellable and lose sight of a wholeness that's not sellable, like a wholeness that's just us and our experience. That's not about money. That's not about getting ahead in capitalism, because we've learned to see ourselves as products and how much we're worth by the hour. You know, <laughs> like and we, and and if you know within that whatever twelve dollars, fifteen dollars, twenty, whatever you're making an hour, your emotions don't belong. You're ancestors don't belong the rest of you doesn't belong like we've it's all like it's it's there right like and so in park on resilience we take the opportunity within that pillar to like invite a fullness of our body being about a fullness of feeling a fullness of
1: connecting with things that are important to us i'm wondering it does so i i think that I think that makes it pretty clear, what your vision is of uh, for the thing that you're creating, PARCON Resilience. Yeah. And I'm wondering how, and I'm hesitating because I'm not sure if I should ask you what you thought it was gonna be or just straight up what did it actually turn out to be. So let's just go with what did it turn out to be. So did PARCON Resilience end up being a vehicle for helping individual people, like the people who come to the classes, the people who actually participate in it and with it, whether that's spontaneously joining a jam or they come to class regularly, did it wind up being a vehicle for helping those people? Or did it become a vehicle for, yes, we're all here, but somehow we're helping the random society that, we bumped, that we're that we bumping into? So I'm wondering how that played out. So you, you've cre- obviously created this thing, and I know it's spread into other countries. I'm just wondering, did did you discover that it's helping? Because I guess it's doing both, but what is it really accomplishing? Is it helping the people who one by one come in and experience it, or is it actually going to change a larger number of minds by people who brush up against it on just they ran into it on one day in a park
0: Mm -hmm. i mean it's difficult to know what the impact is of people who run up against it in the park at least at at this point it is it is only a few years old and so mostly it's been along the the populations that i've been connected with through dance um so people of color within the improv and contact improv community and or, or just the dance community in New York City, as well as people who are engaged in anti-racist movements. I'm part of ACRE, which is Artists Co-Creating Real Equity, which is a group that comes out of the Undoing Racism workshops done by PSAB. PSAB is another acronym for the People's Institute for Survival and Beyond. And they're an organization that is out of New Orleans that's that does these week on workshops all over the country, and they've reached over four hundred thousand people with their workshops to help people learn about uh, this first pillar that we're talking about the the white black pillar and understanding racism. And so, a lot of of the activist and anti racist community that I've connected with has been through them. As the work is growing, I am starting to connect with other communities. So. At the end of last year, we did a a workshop at Urban Planning and Equity, like a a conference for Urban Planning and Equity. And that was exciting. It was the first time, but it was really clear that being able to move and orient in your environment differently opened up different ways of perceiving and understanding other people's experiences for urban planners, Mm. period. Right, And so there's just so much room for exploring things there. This year I'll also be doing some stuff with the National Educators Alliance, so with teachers, and some teacher unions in New Jersey. And also just doing some more stuff with dancers and improvisers mm. just around, because that's the... That's the lowest hanging fruit. I'm, for us. So I'm like,
1: what's the metaphor for that? It's, <laughs> it's
0: lowest hanging fruit, right? Lowest <laughs> hanging fruit. But I, but I'm people most like interested and it. excited in this work getting out there because I f- really feel like it can orient us to
1: other ways of connecting to the world mm-hmm. and connecting with each other. Yeah, I'm interested in trying to capture some of the. Mm, I'm not quite sure whether to say cross pollination, but so what I'm thinking is in my head I'm picturing the video from the Highline flash mob. Highline mm-hmm. is a, for those who don't know what it is, Highline is a linear park. And, uh, it's an old elevated railway converted to a linear park that runs down the west side of New York City I don't know, 40 blocks or something. Yeah. It's pretty big. But it also runs through like Chelsea and some upscale, racially divided mm-hmm. shopping mecca. Runs through some buildings. like It's It's not the most diversified environment. Um, it's, it's actually literally elevated above like the normal street level. And I'm wondering, first of all, did that factor into your decision to, hey, let's do a flash mob jam on the High Line? Or was it, I mean, there are some cool spaces there. I've been up there. I'm just wondering, did that factor in, like, did you go to that space to have the flash mob because it seemed like a really glaring place that could really use a little bit of this experience? Or is there a completely prosaic backstory as to why it happened there?
0: Well, the Highline had hired us uh, to do a performance for their opening of the season. And so we were doing the flash mob as a way of scoping out mm. the space and the environment that we were going to be in. And so, I mean, we bring, yeah, it, it, we brought we brought our community there. And it was a flash mob of, people so so yeah it was kind of interesting to have a bunch of us across ability and people of color there like in the space doing doing our thing and i wouldn't say it's totally white in that that area i mean there's there's a diverse crowd that that came through as we did the flash mob but the focus wasn't, uh, for us at that time, wasn't necessarily
1: audience interaction. Mm. Yeah, it was It was more to scope out the space for, <laughs> yes. for a later project. Yes. I love when things don't go anywhere where I was thinking. <laughs> but did you get engagement? And now maybe just like unfocused from that event, since I picked the terrible example. Are there any, I, I love to collect stories. Yeah. Stories are my thing. I love to, there's a whole shtick I like to say about that, but I'll skip it for the listeners. But what I'm thinking is, are there any particular experiences that you've seen passers-by or bystanders that you've seen happen or experiences where, I gotta believe there's a million stories about random people who stop and go, what are you guys doing? Like that's kind of a common one, but I'm just wondering if you could explain or show some of the transformation in the tangentially contacting public that has Mm -hmm. occurred around these events that you've run? Yeah, some of it,
0: I mean, some of it has been, there's a range of of reactions right so when we've done it in some of the parks in my neighborhood here in harlem east harlem like i i when when my son was four i did it in in jefferson park which is nearby here which is sadly being torn down right now but it's it's uh being upscaled to some kind of new playground but anyway
1: we won't go there <laughs> yeah don't open the, don't don't get me started on crappy playgrounds that are <laughs> purpose-built play anyway i miss it so in jefferson with in, your in jefferson son, he was son. Four. Um,
0: we started playing with things and um some parents started getting interested and so i basically just held open classes mm. um so in terms of public right it's just like what are you doing oh we're doing this oh yeah let's have mother father Kid engagement. Right. So there, you know, it ended up being a class of six to 10 people. It was totally free to the community. Whoever came by, let's do it. Mm. And that similarly happened in Canada when we did some park on class outside in the playground. There's kids there. You just open it up. Anybody who wants to participate, you're welcome to join, and kids and family join in. Um, so, in terms of those environments, but when we did it, uh, so East Harlem is predominantly latino and when we've done it more in central harlem which is more black the responses were that they didn't want their children to be rolling around on the ground with us and i you know and i i take that as like i think there's a lot more work we could do to mm-hmm. be connecting with families and making it welcoming to understand what what we were doing and so maybe maybe some preparing our material better or preparing our, our spiel better or our welcoming better could have made it more welcoming. Hmm. But part of it is I I I put the onus on how are we engaging within forces that are already present and might be supporting an interaction to happen and others that might be not. Like we were adults in in that other example, that latter example, we were adults Without any children, mm-hmm. and I think Javaka was with us. So one black man, and the rest of us were not black, entering a space that we were just taking up space where this, which wasn't necessarily uh, agreed upon by by this uh, family, and
1: so plays out a certain way, right? <laughs> yeah, people form a, a preconceived notion, turns into their first impression in the blink, mm-hmm. and you can't can't really change that.
0: And so we've had uh, other times when people just start videoing you know, or filming mm. and come really close, but they're not asking for any consent. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And so that, those have been discussions within the Park on Resilience community of like, so are people okay with that? Or are they not okay with that? And Sometimes people are okay with that, and sometimes people are not okay mm. with that. So how do we intervene in the public that way? And sometimes the people videoing are like, would you like to learn more about what you're seeing or what you're doing? And if they're like, (laughs) they get skittish and they go Mm -hmm. off Mm -hmm. and I'm like, I guess not. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Solved the other problem too. But sometimes they join in, right? right? Sometimes they'll come and they join in. Other times we've done stuff in, again, East Harlem in my neighborhood, just with adults, not with children and brown and black people walking by will ask us what we're doing. Is that some kind of fitness or personal training thing? And we're like, yeah, it's a way to get, you know, get into your body, enjoy your movements And they see us doing it. And I think the fact that it's a POC majority thing, it feels welcoming. And maybe half the time they join, and half the time they just watch for a little bit and then kind of mosey on. But there's not an alienation. Hmm. I don't, for some reason, with the POC adults that have seen it and stuff, there hasn't been an alienation with it. Or there hasn't, I mean, sometimes they'll be videoing too, but it's not in the same ways sometimes we've experienced from. Kind of a white voyeurism that's just like right. there and just like uh, not six feet engaging. off. Right. <laughs> yeah. Another pillar would be genocide, and with that, the land is made into property, right and and the excess of the land would be the people, and so the people are vanished. Their their culture is vanished. They're seen as not relevant. The spirit of the land is not seen as relevant. It's just something that you do something to build on. And I'm curious to know also from you, and maybe we can have a conversation about what do you feel like your relationship to the land is through parkour? Like what, how has that changed for you? And I can talk about mine from parkour right. and then how it's shifted from parkour. That's a good question. So
1: I Came to parkour late, like when I was 40, maybe 41 or something like that. So when you said, what's my relationship to the land, my first thought was not park Like my first thought wasn't to go thinking about parkour. My first thought was to think about my experience. Uh, So I grew up in rural Pennsylvania, not like super crazy rural where we had horses and buggies, but, you know, 20 minutes to anything kind of rural. And around me was farmlands and woods and... Uh, winding secondary roads and 45-minute school bus rides to get to school, that kind of thing. And for me, my experience of the land was was very much something that I went and played in. We went and, you know, my best friend was a quarter mile away and, you know, we we ran and biked and did all sorts of crazy things. But to me, it was a place that was all around me. It wasn't like I had a suburban this is the yard you're playing in, the playground's over here. It was just like, there's inside, there's outside, be home before the streetlights come on. That was kind of how it worked. Mm -hmm. Um, We're at the few places where there were streetlights at the intersections of some streets. And, So my experience of my environment was something that I was out in and like the things that I could see on the, like the near horizon were places that I had been to and that I knew how to get to and that were, you know, oh, well, my other friend lives like two hills over kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So it was definitely something, you know, I would come home with dirt on me. It was definitely like I went into the space and that's where I grew up. I also grew up at home, but like Mm -hmm. in the space and- parkour, you know, the way I found it was, I didn't really learn it in an urban environment, but oh. my early practices of it were in built spaces. So it would be like in a playground or at a school with a parking lot. or okay. So to me, I call that an urban experience, but it isn't in any stretch of the imagination of urban. It's definitely suburban. But if where I'm practicing my parkour is a cinder block wall, whether an asphalt parking lot and a tennis court, this is effectively urban, even though all around it are fields. Um, so, my experience of parkour was very different from what I would consider my experience of my environment. But so I would say, yeah, I had a, a good experience it, getting f- experience from the environment. Um, but that being said, all the people that I experienced that with were all my cohort, my age cohort. You know, people who looked like me were all the same race, they're all the same middle class. There wasn't any, there was one person of color. In my grade, I think there was a second person of color in my entire... Like in the school, there were two people. Mm -hmm. Um, So there was no racial mixture. There was no... It was all basically the same socioeconomic status. So it it was still a certain perspective on the environment. Like this land is used for farmland. That's what most of it was used for. This land was used for... This is the church property. This is my property. That's your property. We don't go in those woods because that belongs to the crazy guy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it was still... I don't know, the more stereotypical, modern, stereotypical perspective of land. It wasn't like um, I can just walk in a straight line for 15 miles and it's all just open space. So I think I had a, I'm not going to say exceptionally good, maybe compared to today, an exceptionally good experience, but it's still a particular kind of experience with the land. Hmm. Um, There's definitely, like if you went like snapshotty pictures, you know, ideas of like riding my bicycle 45 minutes to my other friend's house, you Mm -hmm. know, through the dappled sunshine and car crashes and stuff too, you know, but like, like moving through the environment was something I did all the time, but it was still a certain kind of environment. It was definitely a, a conquered environment. It wasn't like I had to bushwhack anywhere there are street signs and there are roads and it was very much the traditional, what you would think of as suburbia kind of thing. So I don't know if that answers your question or... Yeah, if that gives yeah. you...
0: Yeah. No, that's that's great. I think... So one one thing that I... One thing that's curious to me with... So I, as I said before, when I first started doing parkour, a wall became something that I could um, start to play with, that I could start to have a relationship with. And it it became something that I could, number one, use any part of my body to and start to have a relationship in that way. And it became something that I could start to orient to with my imagination and so whether it was projecting my ancestor onto the wall right in, in my body and in the way that I relate to my body there's a certain way that I might hold strength or hold let's say strength for now hold strength in my body and, the, and you can just imagine maybe my body or me or your body <laughs> Rolling on the side of a wall, like leaning on the side of the wall, and I'd have certain expectations about my ability or or that experience. But maybe a part of the wall becomes more jagged, and all of a sudden I can't do that, or there's a hole in the wall, or something about the expectations about the space change what I thought was going to happen. But I'm still experiencing. I'm still committed to the experience of strength of my ancestors. And so in that commitment, I'm a, the space is speaking as my ancestors in a way, right? Um, it's like, it's an invitation to allow the unknown to become part of the way in which we're relating to our, to our wholeness, to our world. That who I am isn't just things that I know, but it's more about my intentions of who, like, what I'm paying attention to as I navigate through the world with both known and unknown forces. Hmm. Right? And it's my ability to return to that intention and not get derailed. And, And maybe some people would call that faith or prayer. Right? But like... I feel like the practice of Park on Resilience or the practice of keeping one's attention on something is the ability to keep intention even if unknown things come into play. And so in that sense, in Park on Resilience, I'm not just exploring how can I get from one point to another point. I'm focusing on how can I show up in an intention for a given amount of time You know, it could be a minute or it could be five minutes or, or it could be from when we're getting from one place to another, but how can I show up in that intention and just witness myself there, be a witness for how, how I show up in relationship to the environment or another person while holding that intention. And sometimes it feels uncomfortable and sometimes it feels familiar but there's in that, in that space of uh, not fixating on what it emotionally feels like comes a possibility for it to be something different, if that makes sense. So that my sense of strength isn't just what I expected the wall to be. And if it fell out of my expectation, then it's not strength, right? No, I'm committed to this experience over a phrase of time to be about strength And the wall is going to be part of that relationship and that expression of it. And we're going to engage in this experience together. And I'm going to find a way as my part, my responsibility to reorganize myself, to understand that intention as we move through it together. And so in that way, the space becomes, uh, has an animism. Hmm. And each space teaches something different, different, very different. So, so that's what's something that's beautiful about park on resilience for me is that each space teaches something different and if I come to it with a different intention or if I'm dancing with a different person who has different constraints or different abilities or different history to the space it does something very differently like like it's maybe it's easy to think of with ability like if somebody's in a chair or not in a chair but if we were downtown in a space where there's burial site of 40,000 African Americans and I'm dancing with a, a black person there and we, uh, we have oriented to that history. I want to be in an empathetic place in my movement in the way that I'm <clears throat> connecting with them, with my, with my body and my somatics. I want to be there as a witness. I want to show up to, to show up with them as, as they're experiencing their, their fullness you know, and and so part of our process also is to talk about things. To you know, it's not just about the movement, but it's about like, well, what what is this for you? What does this mean to you? What is what are you bringing to this? What is this transforming for you? How can I be with you in a way that is not triggering or hurtful, but actually supportive? Or where do I need to be clear about what my capacity is to be able to do that or not? Mm. Right. So it's so part of this. Part of the park on resilience is also about, which brings us to the third pillar, actually, which is Orientalism, which I would relate to access, whether somebody's allowed to be in or out, right? Because Orientalism is about foreignerness. Oh, you're always a foreigner, and it justifies mm-hmm. the US having wars on other countries. <laughs> and so, in the relationship to our own boundaries, like how do you know what your own boundary is? in relationship to another person. Well, we're doing it all the time, whether you want to or not. We, You and I have chosen to be a certain distance from each other right. based on conscious and unconscious needs for whatever, like, oh, I need to feel a certain amount of ease, so I'm gonna be at this place, or I wanna feel a certain feeling of play, so I've kind of tilted my body in a certain way, right? right? So I've, I've made choices in my body that are subconscious, but that are in the place, like literally in the space that we are, to support how I show up with you in this space. I I brought the altar pieces out here mm-hmm. because I wanted to make sure I centered the values that were important to me, and so they were an anchor for me, right? And so, so how I show up isn't about just about my individual resilience. It's about my relationship to the land to objects that are around me to the people that are around me and my, and how I negotiate my own boundaries and how I work with that access of like, how do I, what, how do I need to take care of myself to be able to know how close or how far to be away from you so that I can show up Mm -hmm. and can we be in communication so that I can support you to show up in your fullness and, you know, and then we can have this, this intimacy, right? Like what is, what is intimacy? And like, and I feel like intimacy is this process of where people are respecting each other's boundaries and able to play without hurting each other. I mean, I guess you can have hurt with an intimacy, but I'd rather find, (laughs) find that, that play (laughs) and intimacy. Yeah. Without, without the triggering. And so the more prep work we can do to, to support places of, intimacy or i call it a comfort zone sometimes in park on resilience a comfort zone without triggering into a fight fight or flight response Mm -hmm. then new things can emerge for both of us and and then with park on resilience in particular it's like new ways of reaching for the environment new ways of engaging with the environment i can explore strength i can explore kindness or caring in way in my body in nonverbal ways that i wouldn't be able to by myself while i negotiate the environment cuz maybe the wall is donald trump and i'm trying to figure out how to stay in my kindness while i'm negotiating it with another person who's you know i don't know either another aspect of myself <laughs> that i uh, we've kind of agreed to like go on this improvisation where i'm exploring this part of myself or or you know an uh somebody who's on the other political spectrum and you know whatever it is like it could be anything but it all gets expressed through Movement and how I'm sharing or shifting my weight, like it all, and that's kind of where my background
1: is—like a movement analyst—and all
0: that right. stuff comes in because yeah, a lot that's of the things about, I
1: mentioned are, are, and we we haven't got anywhere near Feldenkrais or, yeah. another, and I, I think those are very important. But I'm like, well, I only have so much time, so we kind sure, of, but sure. we've we've completely like left all that stuff in the dust. And if you weren't listening super close or you skipped over the intro, you wouldn't realize the the listener one wouldn't realize the depth of experience that you're speaking from so not that like you've seen everything you know all the answers but you've done a lot of movement analysis you've mm-hmm. done a lot of movement and so sometimes when i i often tend to downplay people's backgrounds and histories and that kind of that stuff all gets lost an hour into the conversation you know it and i know it but it doesn't mean that the people listening always have the proper grounded frame for you know they're like oh it's just somebody talking through their hat like no <laughs> people have come from a lot of experience when they say things so I, I think that's important that people realize the amount of time you have spent analyzing, you know, just from a nuts and bolts perspective, analyzing movement and then analyzing the interplay between movement and emotion or movement and learning. And there's, there's a lot of thought put into the things that you were saying, so. Does any particular story jump out when I say, Andrew, is there a story that you'd like to share? Maybe you can help me
0: with this story it's about, <laughs> but with some questions. Um, <laughs> sure. <laughs> So I'm thinking about one of our community members. Her name is Ione Lewis. Ione is a black woman with cerebral palsy who uses a motorized chair. And she actually used to be, I think she's okay with me saying this, that she actually used to be a patient of mine as because I'm a physical therapist. Maybe it was about six years ago. And I was teaching some park on classes at the time at this place called the access access project which is up here in east harlem and it's a a specialty gym for people with disabilities mostly people with spinal cord injuries but all, all different kinds of abilities were there and so i would teach this weekly class there and i co-taught it at times with Colleen Roach and Jazz once in a while, Jazz Cyrus, and it was a good experience. At some point in time, Ione Ione showed up in, in the community, and I was very excited to see her because she always has this joyful, springy energy about her, and... She's like, "Oh hi, Andrew. Good to see you and i you know I was like, yeah. and i i I don't know if I remembered her name at first because it'd been so it felt like it was so mm. long since we'd seen each other, and then we gave each other a hug and ended up getting Ione's name eventually but, <laughs> but I was like, do you want join do you want to try this parkon class? Do you want to try some park on?" She's like, "What's that?" And I, I told her about it, and she looked a little skittish. She's like, I don't know about this touchy stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, okay. And we did we were doing an exercise called No Yes Modify. And basically it's about people um, being able to assert their ability to say no to another person. So the, the exercise goes, one person is putting their hand on your shoulder, and then the person who is receiving that touch either moves a hand away or before the hand even gets there says no. Um, and you can say no, however you want. You can be like, no, or you can be like no, whatever you need to do. And then it just goes to different body parts. And, and you do the same with yes. Like, how do you, how do you really receive somebody? How do hmm. you really, and, and that becomes the the premise for being able to take weight and share weight through any part of the body because you're having a consentful relationship. And so, so I owned, did this and, seemed like she was having a lot of fun and and that was a class and then i think two weeks later she was telling me how it was like changing her life the ability to say no to to men especially because i think i think she has experienced a lot of men assuming like they can uh, make advances or touch her or do different things towards her because she's a black woman with a disability and she found more assertiveness and power within her within within her body and her presence in relationship to these men and some you know some who she's known before and, and so she was like this is great this is really shifting things And so we kept on meeting, and I eventually had her co-teach a class to seniors with me in East Harlem, Um, and she would come in, and they saw her as part of the community, and we all really bonded together, and she would come and come to a jam. We had a jam downtown, and she moved from somebody who was in in her chair and kind of afraid to move out of it to somebody who was like, get me out of the chair, and like being... While we're, like there's a picture of us somewhere where we're on a rock and she's leaning into an inversion head mm. down her feet are are up and it's like she's like just this big bright smile and she's and she is ready to take those risks with people you know like we we she uses the tools she's able to like talk with another person, figure out expectations together and, and find a consensual way to to enter and engage in a mutual dance together. And it's just been amazing to see the power of uh, dance and expression in her life and and for her to step into being an artist in a way that she hasn't, uh, and for herself, she's like, I never thought of myself as an artist. And and just, like she has such a big heart and such a, a, a wonderful way of listening that I'm like, wow, the world really needs to see this in your heart and like and she's been there for me many times like just you know we share and process things as a group and as a collective and yeah since then she's part of the core community and we've gone to Canada to the to a Toronto contact improv jam and she's she's just amazing she's able to move with other people and make their boundaries and so she's taken the tools that we learned in the classes and that we learned together into her life in a way that's so inspiring. Like she's like Andrew, I just used park on in the shower, in in a way that, to like that she would have fallen if she wasn't using all parts of her body, but because she's using all parts of her body, she could roll off of her body onto the shower wall in a way that mm. where the railing wasn't and, and support herself right. So, and she was more ready to do that, so she wouldn't go into spasticity right. So so there was. So there's an application for using the park in that sense, but also just like in her own jumping and claiming into life has been so inspiring and a huge motivator for me to like keep doing this work and to, to support I own in supporting other people like her to do this also. So her story is super special to me and at my heart
1: and hope she listens to this. <laughs> well, thank you for sharing that. And my immediate question is why, this is an actual question. Yeah. Why did you think you would need my help on telling that story? Oh, I don't know. I don't know.
0: Sometimes I, I, I don't know. I, w- I wonder how stories are going to come out. And I wanted to make a request if my flow was starting to get stifled or stop that that uh, a question from you could have helped my flow to uh, keep going. So it was more of like a be a buddy with me on this journey of
1: telling a story because I haven't planned it out or anything like that. But. No, that's totally cool. People who, the, there are very few people who get to see a podcast get recorded and they might guess by now that there's a lot of visual stuff that happens that isn't captured by the microphone so that I, I can have a half of a conversation without making a sound. Yeah. And I do that intentionally so that the guests... You hear guests guest talk for 20 minutes, and people think, oh, man, how do, they, how do people do that? You're like, you're hung out on the line and asked to perform. It's like, no, no, we're having a conversation. Yeah, like a nonverbal. Thing. Yeah, I'm just not like, oh, and here's my two cents, because who cares what I have to say? Let's hear <laughs> sure, what, sure, your, sure. what you have to say. So.
0: And I appreciate your listening, right? Because that's part of how I show up, right? So so we were kind of doing, a for me, like a parkani thing here, too. And, and me making a, re- a request
1: <laughs> yes. is, is me using the tools of what right. I know of, like... You know, I agree. Here. I agree so. completely. <laughs> I was kind of hoping that was where you were going to go with all that. Andrew, there are so many things that, that we could talk about, right? Um, but what I want to do is maybe just, I hate to say zoom out, but maybe let's just zoom out a little bit. And if people have listened this far, I would love to figure out a way to give people something. And I don't want to say like, what's well, one exercise people can go do to be, you know, but like, is there anything that you can ask people to think about or a challenge that they can try So I suspect that a lot of people who listen to the podcast are really into the nuts and boltsy parkour or ADD or free running, you know, very, very individually movement, individuals moving type of practice. And I'm wondering if you imagine somebody like that, is there something that you can ask of them or a challenge you can give them that might help them, I don't want to say break the mindset mold, but help them think more the way that you are suggesting people approach movement?
0: yeah well i mean i th- I think movement has the p- the power to to reveal our experience of the world mm, okay right so even if you're doing the same line in parkour, for example, if you're doing a sequence of movements d- during the same line, what if you do that same line with a different focus in mind mm. like what if you do that same you could just try colors <laughs> like what if you do it as the color red? versus the color blue or chartreuse or dark brown. <laughs> dark brown, right? Like how, how do those different colors show up in your movement differently? Because is your movement just geared towards being functionally functionally efficient? Yeah. Like is that is that the goal? As a as a physical therapist, that's how bodies are seen for me. Like mm. people come to me for, for them to fix themselves. Yeah. But this the body is seen right. as as just for function. But as a a somatic movement therapist, as a dancer, it is expression is incredibly important. And that goes back to the first pillar that I was talking about, right? Mm -hmm. Of like, body is not just property. The body is something that we express through that our consciousness expresses through. So why not practice expressing our consciousness in different ways through a line that we're running? If you're gonna do it a million times anyway, Mm. Like, <laughs> try, it, try it with different intentions. If anything, doing it as different colors is going to help reveal different details about the line as you do it, right? You're going you're gonna to start seeing things or your body is going to coordinate in a different way to see different aspects of the place or different, coordinate differently in your body to manifest brownness or mm. to manifest blueness. You could try an emotion. You could try your political feelings. Whatever it is, allow something... Mm. To join you in the way that you are relating to your body, in the way that you're relating to the land, because it is happening. It is happening on (laughs) land, right? Whether you are admitting it or not, it is happening. And we can choose to have a habitual relationship, which would be to not question or to not try Mm.
1: these experiments. Is it Seneca who said the unconsidered life is not worth living? I think it was.
0: (laughs) Or we can try these experiments and, and see if efficiency can come through the exploration of multiple possibilities, mm. which is which happens with which is a repetition in itself, but it's a little different than constantly repeating the same thing, right? Like mm. it's a different way to develop the skill through repetition.
1: And of course, the final question: three words to describe your practice. POC centered. That be one. <laughs> That's one.
0: <laughs> okay. I always say hyphens are free.
1: Okay. Good. <laughs> relationship building. Mm-hmm. Vulnerable. Thank you very much, Andrew. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Craig. This was episode 81. For more information, go to moversmindset.com slash 81. And I'll leave you with a final quote from Desmond Tutu. My father used to say, don't raise your voice, improve your argument."